<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This call is being recorded. To accept the call, press 3. John Gate. If I found a body in your trunk, do I assume that you kidnapped him, tortured him, raped him, and threw him in the trunk? Welcome to Killer's Vault. I'm Elizabeth Rome. Join Eric Roberts and me as we take you inside the brutal minds of the most prolific serial killers the world has ever known. Through never-before-seen or heard letters and phone calls between Rob Webb and Richie and Barbara Dickstein, these personal accounts of murder and mayhem will be unleashed for the first time as we open The Killer's Vault. David Allen Gore and Fred Waterfield, The Killing Cousins. On January 17, 1999, David Allen Gore wrote the first of many letters to his new pen pal, Richie Dickstein. In it, Gore opens with an immediate explanation of his crimes as well as hinting at the brutality he inflicted while in commission of those crimes. As the letters progress, so does their friendship and a deep level of trust is established, something Gore had never experienced before. It is then that Gore divulges admissions to the many other rapes and murders he committed, though was not arrested for. In his letters, Gore also tries to explain the impetus of his hate and when the insanity of his existence began. In this excerpt from his first letter, Gore is trying to decipher what type of person Richie Dickstein is. Gore is baiting him, gently teasing out what it is that Richie Dickstein is searching for in their correspondences. Gore is desperate to please his new friend, hoping for a long relationship. But he's also probing, trying to determine whether Richie wants him to write all of the extreme and graphic details of his murders and rapes or not. Gore is hopeful that he's found a kindred spirit in Richie, a dark co-conspirator who will help him relive all of his horrific and gruesome crimes one bloody line after another. I let a lot of hate and rage build up in me. I began venting that rage and hate on women, the cause of all my pain. I became very skilled at destroying women, and the cops in my town were baffled. One of my victims, which I was never caught for, was the wife of a police detective. Yeah, they were baffled, all right. I usually don't get into the details unless the person I'm writing wants to read it. All you have to do is ask and I'll answer. But I do get pretty graphic. I just don't want you to worry about asking graphic questions. I really don't mind. And you won't offend me. In 1983, David Allen Gore and Fred Waterfield, the killing cousins, were arrested and subsequently convicted for the rape, torture, and murders of six women in Vero Beach, Florida. However, law enforcement officials believe they committed as many as 30 additional murders and dozens of sadistic and barbaric rapes long before they were captured. The motive behind their slayings was fueled by misogyny, sadistic sex, and an insatiable need to dominate and control women. The murders were tertiary, incidental to the malicious rape and torture they perpetrated against all of their victims. Murdering for them was nothing more than a tool. It represented the claw end of a hammer, which they used to extinguish life in an effort to never leave a witness behind. As a boy, David Allen Gore was a needy and troubled loner. He relied solely on his cousin, Fred Waterfield, 
for the friendship and acceptance he never received from any of his peers. He worshipped Freddy, whom he regarded as his savior. He saw in his cousin the boy he so desperately wanted to be. Athletic and outgoing, everyone wanted to hang out with him. Waterfield's father, a brilliant engineer, moved his family from New Jersey to Goresville Beach neighborhood when Freddie was nine years old. After securing an engineering position at NASA, he became, for the most part, an absentee husband and father to his wife and three children. Waterfield's mother then began to rely heavily on Gore's father, whom the boys referred to as Uncle Gore, to help manage and raise her three children. Uncle Gore, a quiet, non-confrontational man, became the sole male presence in the boys' lives, and as such, he was tasked with disciplining and mentoring the boys into adulthood, both of which he proved incapable. Gore's mother was an extremely pious and strong-willed woman who ruled the household with a strict and cold efficiency. When her son David was sick, or he lapsed into what she referred to as annoying and growing melancholy, she would strip down to bra and panties, sit him on her lap, and for hours read verses and chapters of the Bible to him. Despite their seemingly different personalities, David Allen Gore and Fred Waterfield developed a symbiotic connection that was fueled by sexual fantasy. Once this deviant commonality was realized, the two boys would emerge as a dark, inseparable duo that would tear apart a community and destroy the lives of countless families. Stephen Giangelo is the author of two books on serial killers, including Real Life Monsters, A Psychological Examination of the Serial Murderer. He's a former Illinois state criminal investigator and was assigned to the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force. Currently, Steve is an adjunct professor in the Criminology and Criminal Justice Department at the University of Illinois Springfield, where he's taught for the last 22 years. What are your ultimate thoughts on the Waterfield-Gore pairing and them as a serial killer team? Well, I mean, I think uh, the... uh extent that you're describing as far as the family members and all that is yet another indicator of the fact that Gore did not need Fred to come along and tell him, hey, let's go out and kill girls. This is something that they absolutely shared. It's something that they could play off each other and go back and forth and talk about, which is something that worked out for their relationship just fine. But I I bet the house that Gore was uh, would eventually go out there and take out his absolute hatred for women in a homicidal manner before he was done. In a letter dated February 5th, 1999, this was Gore's response to a question presented by Richie Dickstein. You asked me an interesting question. If I could go back in time, would I live my life the same way? No, I wouldn't. I still have the same attitude towards certain types of women, but what I do different is use knockout drugs. And once the cunt was unconscious, I take her clothes off, take photos of her, and fuck her. Then I put her clothes back on and leave. When she wakes up, she wouldn't know what happened, and she could then go on her way. Though I'd probably still have done runaways. I wouldn't get the housewives and others. Hitchhikers are pretty easy prey, and most young women who are hitchhikers are runaways, so they are untraceable. So, in a different life... I definitely grab and enjoy a few of them. Hey, I'm being honest. I'm not one of those guys that claim they're innocent and all. I did what I did. And it was a thrill to do it. Almost 30 years of imprisonment, Gore still has the urge to abduct, rape, and kill. Throughout his years of incarceration, he wrote hundreds of letters to Richard Dickstein. In these letters, he brags about not only the six murders he was sentenced to death for, but scores of other murders and rapes he had assumed he had gotten away with. The letters are filled with the gruesome details of his crimes, as well as artwork depicting and backing up the dozens of murders he wasn't arrested for. However, Dickstein wasn't the only person Gore had correspondences with, nor was Dickstein the only person that he so enthusiastically had been reliving his crimes on paper too. This is an excerpt from a letter he wrote to Richie Dickstein in June of 1999. 
It is a modest example compared to the hundreds he wrote that reveal Gore's casual, pompous, and grandiose attitude regarding his unthinkable crimes. Richie, you asked me how many victims there were in my case. I was only convicted of six murders, but the actual number was probably 30. Plus, I raped quite a few. My youngest victim was 13. The oldest was 46. Several of my victims were a mother and her daughter. My most memorable one was a young mother and her 16-year-old daughter. I kept them both for three days before tiring of them. The daughter was a really fine cunt with a virgin cunt. I tied her spread eagle on a bed and tied her mother up, forcing her to watch me rape her daughter. I killed the daughter in front of her mother. Steve, do you think Gore really killed 30 people or do you think he's exaggerating in these letters? I'll bet not. I'll bet he, he probably did get close to 30. Uh, when I look at numbers and serial murders, the first thing I tell people is don't get caught up in the numbers that are assigned to some of these serial killers. I mean, you always have the, the Henry Lee Lucas who will make up 600 kills. That's going to happen. But on the other hand, uh, the fact that a, a lot of kills have gone on that were not counted, the Bundys, even the Gacy's, I think that's more common than you think. Florida Governor Rick Scott was shown a few of the letters Gore wrote to a different recipient. He was so appalled and disgusted by the callousness with which they were written, he immediately placed David Allen Gore at the top of the state-mandated to-be-killed list. Gore had magically jumped the line in front of 40 other death row inmates all awaiting execution. In just a few short weeks after Governor Scott first came in contact with his letter, David Allen Gore, 58 years old, was dead executed by lethal injection on April 12, 2012. The depraved bond of misogyny and sexual sadism coalesced in the summer of 1962 when Gore was just nine years old and Waterfield was 10. The lifelong pact of evil and sexual sadism was consummated on the dirt floor of a broken down barn. Gore watched with fascination as his cousin, Fred Waterfield, bound, tied, beat, and molested an eight-year-old girl who had the incredible misfortune of visiting Gore's younger sister, Wendy, for a play date on that hot summer day. Neither boy got into trouble for the beating and molestation. Uncle Gore viewing the attack with a backwoods, boys will be boys attitude. The clearly disturbed boys did, however, learn a valuable life lesson that day. The takeaway for the slow submissive Gore and his evil and aggressive cousin Fred Waterfield was that women were secondary and expendable and that they should be objectified as disposable toys to be used as sources for their pleasure. Gore was born in Vero Beach, Florida on August 21st, 1953. His cousin Fred Waterfield was born 11 months earlier in New Jersey moved to Vero Beach with his family when he was nine years old. In spite of their polar opposite personalities, the cousins were inseparable. Throughout his life, Gore struggled with a weight problem. He was slow in all manners. He hated playing sports, which he wasn't very good at. He was not considered attractive, and he was socially awkward, all of which contributed to a lifelong battle with self-hatred and low self-esteem. On the other hand, Waterfield was tall, attractive, socially adept, and an excellent athlete. He was the atypical small-town jock who everyone knew and liked. He was the high school football star, the dude with all the girlfriends whom everyone wanted at their party. However, the ease with which he moved so effortlessly through life eventually caught up with him metastasizing into addictions with alcohol and drugs. Before Waterfield moved to Vero Beach, Gore was a loner. In spite of growing up in a beach town inhabited by young families with many children, Gore lived an extremely isolated existence. He wasn't involved in organized sports like many of his peers. He did poorly in school, and he had no friends. However, 
Early on, Gore did try to develop friendships, but there was something different or a little off about him that made it impossible to sustain any long-term relationships. Intuitively, perhaps, children saw something in Gore that spoke to them. It was a warning light or a type of adrenaline alarm, as if they were subconsciously hearing the words, stranger, danger. Somehow, they all felt the same pulsating internal message, stay away from this boy, whatever it was. The neighborhood kids were spot on because there was a lot going on behind Gore's dull, slow eyes. There was a continuous battle waging inside his head, a war that had been raging as far back as he could remember. Gore came to terms with his solitary existence. He decided that being alone was far more enjoyable than having to spend any time at all with his classmates and neighbors. He grew to hate them. He hated how they chose teams, how certain kids always ended up on the winning side, while the very few rejects like him ended up on the losing side. Gore hated to be picked last, and he hated knowing that he would forever be on that losing side. However, the one thing that he hated the most about the Vero Beach kids, especially the girls, was the humiliation they put him through. The hatred he felt behind the name-calling and the bullying was like acid, constantly bubbling behind his eyes and in his brain. Lord ass, big head, white trash. Those evil stuck-up bitches hiding behind the boys, using them for protection, laughing, giggling, uh, trying to impress each other. He wanted to hurt them, hurt them badly. In this excerpt dated February 5th, 1999, Gore expresses that same anger and hatred he felt as a boy and the retribution he received so many years later. To be honest, Rich, the type of cunts I despise, the ones I love hunting and have no mercy for, are the cunts that use men. Teasing, leading them on. I just hate, hate, hate cunts like that. And they are the ones I'd make scream the loudest. No, Rich, I am not an animal. I just hate cunts like that. I'm very into torturing my victims. I mostly torture them by slicing off their nipples. If they had real large tits, I'd cut it off flush with their chest. I'd hold the cunt's own tit up so she could see it. <laughs> then I'd cut off their clits and use soldering irons on them. I know most men would never carry their hatred for women as far as I did. It was just, it was just how I dealt with it at the time. Honestly, I was very gratified every time I did a woman. To me, she was one less cunt who could hurt a man. As Gore grew, so did his fantasies, progressively becoming darker and more elaborate. Sadistic sex, bondage, and beatings. He would use these grandiose daydreams to give himself omnipotent control and power, which he would then use to destroy his enemies, girls and women. He'd close his eyes, and after a few moments, he could actually see the change. He now had ripped and lean muscle. His hair was thick and long. His face was thin and chiseled. He saw the naked Playboy models on each arm and the slamming red sports car. He imagined he was running, big gun in hand, with his gold badge dangling from his neck. Detective Dave Gore, hunter and destroyer of women. The detective's shield sparkled in the sunlight, dramatically bouncing in slow motion off his thick pectoral muscles as he closed the distance on his prey. Detective Dave Gore would think about the retribution he was going to get while devising sinister ruses to catch and kill every woman who had ever dared to make fun of him. Steve, in an excerpt dated from February 5th, 1999, Gore expresses his hatred of women in general. 
What are your thoughts on Gore's experiences with women in his life, his family members, his classmates, his prior relationships with women for this this beating and raping that Waterfield did to his sister's eight-year-old friend? And, uh, and how did that factor into his type of victimology and becoming a serial killer? I think the key thing as far as Gore's hatred for women, and, and let there may be no mistake, he hated women, and that's all there was to that. But the fact was, he even said that he had a really hard time finding sex in his neighborhood. And he said that, the, that they were stuck-up bitches and whatever other terminology that he used for them. He was frustrated by their rejection of him. Uh, he doesn't sound a whole lot different than some of the incels that we've heard about in, in recent years, the, uh, the Elliot Rogers that went out there and finally decided, these women aren't appreciating me enough, they should be having sex with me, I'm going to go out and kill them. This is not unlike what, what Gore was experiencing every single time he went out and killed a woman. And uh, he, uh, he was very consistent with that, I thought. In a letter dated January 22nd, 1999, Gore writes about those ruses that he used to stalk and capture his victims. He also tries to explain away his anger. To be blunt, I hunted women as a hunter hunts prey. I became very efficient hunting females. I used many ruses. My most effective was impersonating a cop and I loved outsmarting the cops. A woman would come up missing and the police would search and search and still have no clues because I learned how to clean up the crime scenes. I had also studied law and I knew how the police gathered evidence from working as an auxiliary deputy. I think I mentioned in my last letter that one of my victims was a wife of a police detective, which was a real challenge because that bitch knew all the sage precautions. But when I did get her, I felt invincible. She was about 28 years old and a real fucking bitch. I hated cunts and thought their shit didn't stink and who thought men should bow down to them. Those types of women usually ended up being my victims. Let me tell you, Richie, their attitude really changes when you had them tie noon to a bed and you're fucking the shit out of their pussy. They scream just like the others. I always say, sometimes females, whores, just need straightening out. <laughs> a lot of my victims were housewives. I loved abducting housewives from their homes. Gave me such a rush to be able to slip into their world and capture them. I used so many disguises and ruses to gain access. You know, I've experienced just about everything someone could experience, as well as witnessing things very few people ever get to see. Dr. Catherine Ramsland is a world-renowned expert on serial killers, a professor of forensic psychology and criminal justice. She has five graduate degrees, three of which are forensic psychology, clinical psychology, and criminal justice. She's the author of How to Catch a Killer, Confession of a Serial Killer, and 66 other books, in addition to hundreds of articles and short stories. It's wonderful to have you on the show, Dr. Ramsland. Do you think that Gore is trying to manipulate the letter reader by writing what he thought people would want to hear? Or do you think Gore was actually self-aware in terms of the origins of his hatred for women? I think Gore is self-aware in a very superficial way. He's not saying anything particularly insightful there. But he's also just having fun. He's entertaining himself when he writes letters like this. He's reliving things. And he really wants to give the impression of being a dominant, smart, trickster type of person who can fool even the police. They think about their victims as objects for their own gratification, their pawns in their game. That's all that matters to them, what they get out of it. That's how they're able to distance themselves from the victims as human beings. They see the victims as objects, toys, their for their gratification. His childhood fantasies carried over into adulthood. Soon he began living in his own fantastical world and finding comfort only in that world as he continued to blur the line between fantasy and reality. 
In this letter, Gore writes about one of those fantasies, which evolved into the rape, torture, and murder of many of the runaways he abducted and brutalized. When I was younger, Richie, I used to dream about opening up like a halfway house for runaway girls. That way, I'd have my pick without doing any of the hard work. I even went to town meetings to suggest opening a place like that, but they really weren't into it. Runaways are the best victims because no one's really looking for them. When a girl runs away from home, the parents report her as a runaway to the police who just list her as that. A runaway. And that's that. They never go looking for her. We had this really big 76 truck stop at the edge of our town. And I would go there, sit in a parking lot, and watch all the young girls looking for rides from the truckers. When I saw one I wanted, I'd wait till she was off by herself, and I'd offer her a ride. Most of them would gladly accept. Once in my car, they were pretty much mine, and no one knew they were there. I had this citrus farm I stayed care of about a quarter mile from the truck stop, which is where I'd take some of my victims. One time, I picked up two 14-year-old girls, and as soon as I pulled out of the parking lot, I pulled my gun, leaned them forward, handcuffed both of them. I then drove to the Grove. I spent the entire night fucking them in my mobile home on the property. When the time came to getting rid of them, I hogtied them, took them out of the woods, shot them both. Then I cut off all the ropes, hung them up in my barn by their ankles, and scalped them both, which I kept for my collection. Then I began butchering them. When I finished cutting them into smaller pieces, I buried them in the same hole. And then Gore's childhood prayers were answered. He found that one person who was just like him, Cousin Freddy, moved to town. They would share and build on the same dark fantasies, and together they would use each other's weaknesses to turn those fantasies into heinous reality. Dr. Catherine Ramsland, before Fred Waterfield moved to Gore's town, uh, Gore had a very strange childhood. He was very isolated. He had a very difficult time making friends. How did this set up the Gore-Waterfield relationship? Well, even though Waterfield was a year younger, he was more certain. He was clearer in what he wanted, who he was, and he would then become sort of a role model for Gore to emulate because Gore felt as if life just wasn't working. He was awkward, inadequate, and suddenly he has somebody come into his life who does know what he wants to do, who, who can actually kind of command the scene. And so Gore get, got into sort of an odd relationship with his cousin where the cousin would dictate the terms. You go find me a woman, I'll pay you money. Once they found someone to torture and kill, then Gore had to clean it up. Gore, at the time they began really putting this plan in place, he was an auxiliary police officer, so he had a badge. He was also an overseer of an orchard. So he had a burial place. And so Waterfield saw, this is a great setup. We'll put it in motion. But basically, you're the one that's going to take the fall if anything happens. And Gore went along with that. I wouldn't call him a compliant accomplice. I call him a very ready accomplice. But he certainly needed some leadership. And Waterfield was there for that. Outwardly, Waterfield presented a well-adjusted, good-looking and athletic nine-year-old boy. Fred, or Freddie as his parents called him, was well-mannered. He answered yes sir and no ma'am to adults, and he was a better-than-average student. Waterfield appeared to be the perfect nine-year-old boy with a limited potential. However, Waterfield had a dark secret, which he had carefully hidden from the world. He was a sadist. There were three children in the Waterfield household. Freddie was the firstborn, and two sisters followed. Early on, Waterfield keyed into a family dynamic that seemed to place a greater amount of value and importance on him, the firstborn male, than it did his sisters. 
This perceived dominance gave him an air of entitlement and status over girls, which over time he built on and benefited from. Whether his family dynamic is factual or steeped in fantasy, no one knows. What's important is that in Waterfield's mind, his very first impression of girls, women, was that they didn't count as much as boys did, as he did. He grew to believe that women were weak and apt to submissiveness when challenged by his dominant and powerful presence. As a boy, Waterfield displayed a quick temper when his perceived authority was challenged. Little Freddy apparently couldn't get his beloved family dog to obey his commands, which was adverse to everything he believed and felt up to that point. What Freddy wanted, Freddy got, and if he didn't get it, he took it, and then you were punished. He decided the dog didn't value his importance as much as everyone else did, so he was going to teach it a lesson. Waterfield chained the dog to a tree, and he left it there for well over an hour. When he returned to the whimpering dog, surely happy to see its owner was about to free it, Freddie knelt and began petting it. Once a dog appeared submissive to the boy, he raised a metal pipe high in the air, and with incredible speed and little emotion, he crushed the animal's skull. Though the dog was obviously dead, little Freddy continued to pummel the carcass until there was nothing left but blood, tissue, and bone. Once the cousins understood that they both harbored similar fantasies, they began acting them out. After recognizing Gore's heightening excitement during the assault and molestation of the eight-year-old girl, which matched his own excitement, Waterfield knew that the door to their equal sexual perversion had been kicked open. He also recognized his cousin's idolatry and that he was somewhat of a rube and a follower which were character flaws that he would exploit and use to help him get away with the many sexual perversities he had fantasized about. Not long after the attack, Waterfield impressed upon his cousin how much nicer a grown woman's body was compared to the little girl's. When Gore told him he had never seen a naked woman before, Waterfield proudly marched him to his house. When they arrived, he pulled his cousin into his mother's bedroom closet, where they both crouched and hid. When his mother returned from the beach, Gore was stunned and thrilled as he watched his aunt strip out of her bathing suit and then move into the bathroom, where she showered herself off. From the age of eight or nine, Gore became a compulsive peeping Tom. For many years, he'd skulk outside his aunt's window his two younger cousins' window, and many of his neighbors' windows. Gore continued to peep on unsuspecting girls throughout high school. His favorite place was the girls' locker room. His gym teacher, who disliked Gore and who had subsequently failed him out of high school for reasons not unlike this one, was told that this creepy pupil was hiding somewhere in the girls' locker room, apparently watching the girls change out of their gym clothes. The P.E. instructor found Gore lying atop one of the lockers with his pants around his ankles. The large, angry high school football coach grabbed Gore by the hair and ripped him off of the locker. For maximum punishment and embarrassment, he didn't allow Gore to pull up his pants as he marched him out of the locker room and into the school's main quad. In front of a large gathering of seniors, he proceeded to explain what he saw Gore doing, finally calling him a pathetic creature. Gore then was forever known as Vero Beach's very own pathetic creature. But that didn't stop Gore. Soon after that mortifying event, which everyone in school was talking about, he was later fired from his first job as a gas station attendant after his boss caught him peeping through a hole he had made from a storeroom into the women's bathroom. In this letter, Gore explains his and Waterfield's fixation with peeping and other disturbing voyeurisms. 
I used to be a bad peeping Tom. I knew where this campground was. They had his bathroom with his shower in it for women. Right in the back of it was his cutout for an air vent. I could hide behind it and watch women take showers. I saw so many cunts come in from age 10 to 70. One night, I was watching two women taking a shower, and all of a sudden they embrace and start kissing. One of the women set her finger inside the other woman, which was great to watch. That was the first time I ever saw two lesbians have sex. I also used to slip into women's homes while they were gone, and I'd go through all their private items, which was always fun. But how about this? My wife used to sleep in the nude, and when she was asleep, I used to take pictures of her naked, which she never found out. Then when Freddie was married, he used to take pictures of his wife in the nude, and we'd trade pictures. I used to do all sorts of things like that. Waterfield's Svengali-like power over his cousin only intensified. He learned how to use desire and fear to manipulate not only Gore, but his younger sisters as well. He was a master at eliciting these emotions in order to access his own base desires and needs. This next act of barbarism would prove to be a defining moment in both of their lives. They were about to evolve out of fantasy and into realism with an act of betrayal so incomprehensible that it defies belief. It was a line that once crossed would inform a level of depravity that had no boundaries. It would also serve as a blood bond that would connect the morally corrupt cousins forever. Waterfield wanted to imprint his control, power, and domination into his two younger sisters for the rest of their lives. They were his to do with as he pleased, and there was nothing they could say or do to stop him, because Waterfield owned them. On Gore's 16th birthday, he and Waterfield were asked if they could babysit Waterfield's younger sisters. In spite of the momentous occasion, a birthday that many viewed as a step towards adulthood, one that should be celebrated with friends and family, neither boy resisted the request. In fact, Babysitting the two young girls had been their plan the moment they learned that Waterfield's mother would be away for two days. The cousins had planned the evening for weeks. Waterfield would supply the alcohol and music, and Gore would supply the rope and duct tape. Though the barely teenage girls refused to drink the liquor, Waterfield insisted. When they continued to refuse, he turned it into a game, which he assumed correctly would alleviate the stress and anxiety. He explained the game, or the ruse as Gore called it. They were to hide, and if he or Gore found them, they had to take a drink. The girls had always been frightened of their older brother, who was prone to temper tantrums. They had also been on the wrong end of those tantrums, receiving many beatings which their mother and Uncle Gore seemed to ignore. Waterfield also wielded his big brother authority over them like a hatchet, reminding them that he was the man of the house and should be regarded as such. Without an adult male or a father figure in their home, the girls had no choice but to obey their older brother, whom they were terrified of. And that is exactly what Waterfield preyed upon, their fear. The game began. The girls, of course, were found quickly, and Gore, the toastmaster, plied them with liquor. They did not stand a chance. What at first seemed like an innocent game of hide-and-seek quickly morphed into a terrifying night of bondage and rape. Once the liquor took effect, Gore and Waterfield moved forward with their ugly plan. Gore gagged, tied, and locked one of the girls in a closet. He then moved into a bedroom where Waterfield was waiting. They had talked about this moment for a long time. An event, Waterfield promised his cousin, would take place on his 16th birthday. With his mother out of town, Waterfield fulfilled that promise. Gore's eyes glittered when he entered the bedroom. Cousin Freddie had his sister prepped and ready for him. He stripped off her clothes 
secured her mouth with duct tape, and with the rope Gore provided, tied her thin legs and arms to the bedposts. Gore was dizzy with pride, knowing he would no longer be a virgin in his cousin's eyes, and that Freddy would be there to consummate the historic occasion. He quickly stripped off his clothes and without hesitation mounted his horrified cousin, and he began to rape her. When he was finished, Waterfield traded places with him, and he continued to rape his sister. They then dragged the younger sister out of the closet and raped her as well. The girls never informed their parents what their brother and cousin did to them that night and continued to do to them for the next three years. This letter not only reveals Gore's depravity, but it also reveals a remorseless joy he has when recounting those rapes and why his cousins never told a soul. You know, Rich, I had opportunities to have normal sex with women, but I just love capturing, torturing, and forcing them to give up their pussy. I love tying them up, watching them squirm as they cut their clothes off. In fact, my cousin, he forced his sisters out of their clothes, and then we raped them. We kept one side up in the closet while we did the other on the bed, watching each other fucker and then taking turns. We did this for hours. Then we got his other sister out of the closet and raped her in front of her sister. We took turns fucking him while the other watched. I have to confess, although they were his sisters and my blood cousins, we did think about killing them, but we didn't know how we could explain them disappearing. So Freddie put a beat on him and we took our chances on him not telling. To this day, they haven't said a word. One of his sisters was 13 at the time. He was pumping up the asshole and I was forcing her to suck me. She was crying and screaming, but we made sure her other sister knew that if she told on us, we'd kill them and their mothers too. You know, I almost abducted the youngest sister. I wanted to torture her because she was a fine little slut. Today she's married and has two kids. Gore and Waterfield now considered each other blood brothers, and they wanted to experience the same thrill. But it had to be someone they couldn't control as easily as Waterfield's sisters. As they fantasized and prepped their next rape, which would bring them dangerously close to serial murder, Waterfield posed a question to his cousin. He wanted to determine just how far Gore would go for him. Waterfield asked, if he was prepared to kill their next victim in order to get away cleanly. Gore didn't hesitate. He'd do anything for the acceptance he so desired from his cousin, including murder. Gore happily replied, yes. Can you explain more of the nature behind the Gore-Waterfield relationship? The Gore-Waterfield relationship was about a, a dominant person who kind of set the emotional tone and a, a more subservient person. So, so Gore would do the things that Waterfield asked him to do. Bring me this kind of woman and I'll pay you a thousand dollars. And if Gore brought a woman that wasn't up to snuff, then he wasn't going to get paid. And maybe Waterfield wouldn't even have anything to do with that woman. Um, so Gore was kind of the the drudge work guy. He was the one to go out and find the right women, call Waterfield, say, we're ready for this, come, you know, come on over. Had to wait and see if Waterfield was pleased. If he was, they then went on to rape and murder these women. And then Waterfield left Gore with, again, the drudge work, get rid of the bodies. So, and Gore went along with that. So we do see that dynamic of a dominant person and a more subservient person. But the subservient one in this case is not really a compliant person because they really want to do this. They're, he was very in, enthusiastic about doing this. He would have done this even without Waterfield, but Waterfield clearly is the leader in this. Waterfield was working as a car mechanic's assistant. The owner of the shop liked the way he handled himself as well as the way he handled the occasional angry customer. 
So he placed Waterfield in charge of assessing any mechanical issues a new customer brought in. It was his job to determine the type of work that was needed on the car, how long the job would take, and how much it would cost to fix the problem. It was a perfect gig for him. It gave him the opportunities to not only assess the car, but to assess the woman who brought the car in. Waterfield used this position to search for potential victims, women he could control, women who would fall at his knees, professing his greatness, who would beg to become his sexual slave, to do with as he pleased. And he would use his dolt of a cousin to clean up any loose ends. Witnesses. Fred Waterfield referred to himself as an accomplished swordsman, which is a pejorative tag describing someone who has had many sexual encounters. As such, Waterfield had incredible confidence in his ability to talk any girl or woman out on a date with him. In this excerpt, Gore writes about his cousin's ability to attract women. The letter also reveals how important it was for Gore to make his cousin happy and how they hunted for their victims. Fred was the type of guy that just attracted girls. You ever know someone like that? He always had the girls flirting with him. And we used it to lure into our house of horrors. Man, he was amazing. And I do whatever it took to make him happy because of that. When me and Freddie hooked up hunting together, we were really successful. Working together, you could do a lot more. After our first rape victim, we bought an Econoline van, which we used specifically to hunt in. We remodeled it so we could keep our victims out of sight. There would be days we'd use two, three tanks of gas just driving around hunting for victims. Rich, there were days when victims just fell into our lap. And there were days we couldn't find any potential victims at all. We used to love the hunt, though. That was the most exciting. And when we spotted one, our adrenaline would just rush, man. We used to sit in parking lots of supermarkets to watch for potential victims. But some of the most enjoyable places to hunt were church parking lots. There are so many stories in that van I'll share with you as I continue writing. Steve, let's talk a little bit about the Gore-Waterfield relationship. When Gore was nine and Waterfield was 10, Waterfield beat and molested a little girl, his sister's eight-year-old friend. And Gore's father didn't punish him or hold him accountable. He said, boys will be boys. And it was overlooked and brushed under the rug. So obviously, Waterfield had a huge impact on Gore. That's true. I think in a lot of cases with team killers, uh, people think, I wonder if they actually would have committed the crimes had they not gotten together. But I think if you look at the things that Gore said, Gore insisted that he had a genetic component that was involved in his murders. He mentioned this story about falling into a bed of red ants that um, caused him to have seizures and then changed his, his um, genetic makeup. And he referred to that as a, one example of why his, his biology was different. There was another time when he said, I think the words that he used was that serial killers can't choose not to be serial killers. He, and he was talking about biology. He was talking about the, uh, the genetic makeup of the serial killer. So if Gore believes that, if he believes that there's a certain genetic component to it, I don't think he needs his cousin to come along to cause him to, to eventually kill people. I think that's, that's reminiscent of uh, Ramirez, really, who, who had a violent cousin who had an influence on him. They didn't work together. And Ramirez just went out and did his thing because he wanted to kill people. And I think Gore would have done the same thing. Waterfield found their first non-blood-related rape victim. She was a 16-year-old girl who was taken by the older boy's good looks and charm. So when Waterfield asked her if she wanted to join him and some friends on a private beach, she was thrilled. Waterfield was a master at discerning weaknesses in people that he could exploit. He saw innocence or a virtue in this girl, one that she was clinging to and seemed proud of. He assumed, again correctly, that she was a virgin, which was something 
if taken from her, she wouldn't want anyone to know. It was a secret she'd protect with her life. Waterfield knew she would never tell a soul about what he had planned for her. That is, if his cousin didn't pussy out on the murder. Gore began planning the perfect crime, the hunt. The preparation gave him a purpose. It made him feel important. However, he soon learned that raping and humiliating girls who had shit on him his entire life was his life's mission. In this letter, Gore explains the charge he would get out of planning and hunting for victims, but also the physical preparation he developed in order to become extremely capable and cunning. The letter also reveals the self-importance he received and continued to hold on to 20 years later. You know, Richard, I enjoyed fucking the whores I got, but my biggest thrill and adrenaline rush was the capture. I got such a rush and a high when the moment came to take hold of my intended victim. 90% of the time when I made my first grab or contact with them, I either got them in a headlock or I grabbed them by the hair. See, when I started abducting whores, I literally trained for it. Back then I was six feet, 240 pounds, and I had a vigorous workout schedule. I lifted weights every day for hours to maintain upper body strength. So when I got a whore in a headlock, she was locked. Working out was for one purpose only. So when the time came, it was lights fucking out for that whore. I didn't approach it haphazardly. I was always testing new methods of capture. When I had a target, I carried it out with precision. Even the cops said they had never met anyone as diabolical, cunning, or as capable as me. <laughs> Once I chose a target, I would sometimes spend weeks planning every detail of abduction. The only ones I didn't plan were the hitchhikers but I stayed prepared every minute. I always had my gun and rope with me. To me, abducting females wasn't just a pastime, it was a full-time job. I looked for my next prey constantly. There'd be days when I'd spend 10, 12 hours just driving around the county looking for a victim. Waterfield drove the girl out to a desolate area of the Everglades. He pulled into a pre-designated spot, turned off the ignition, and there was Gore waiting. She recalls both men staring at each other through the windshield, though they didn't say anything. It was a look that made her extremely uncomfortable. After a few eerie moments of the same nothingness, Waterfield turned and began kissing the girl. She nervously pulled away, apparently not as interested in him as he assumed. When she asked where his friends were and where the private beach was, he stalled with his answer. And that is when the passenger door was ripped open. Gord jumped in with a 22 caliber pistol in his hand and he told her that if she screamed, he was going to kill her and dump her body in the swamp for the alligators to eat. The 16-year-old was terrified, thinking that she was about to die a horrible death. So she begged for her life, which excited both men. Waterfield then calmly explained that if she screamed, or if she mentioned anything to anyone about what was going to happen, that he knew where she lived. And one night when her family was sleeping, he was going to break in and kill them all. The cousins took turns raping the girl. When they were finished, Waterfield demanded that she dress quickly. He also reaffirmed his threats, to which she promised never to tell a soul about the rapes. Waterfield then pulled his cousin out of the truck, and as she fumbled with her clothing, they glared at her through the windshield. They enjoyed seeing and feeling her terror, and it was a horror they so easily elicited. She was nothing a meaningless waif, completely powerless in the face of conquering heroes enjoying the spoils of war. 
Years later, after both men were convicted and sentenced, the rape victim recounted these events in an interview. Waterfield wanted to continue his evil game of terror. He wanted to increase her fear by letting her hear what he was saying. He pointed through the windshield and said, Well, now's your chance, like we talked about. Go ahead, do her. The victim explained why she believes she is alive today. She said, He appeared just as terrified as I was, but he also seemed humiliated. He wasn't ashamed of what he had just done to me. He was ashamed of what he didn't or couldn't do, and that was to kill me. That first rape victim was indeed so terrified and convinced that Waterfield would fulfill his threat and execute her family that she never repeated anything about that horrible day. Years later, she said that it felt as though a weight had been removed from her chest after reading about their arrests and convictions, but also because she was suddenly able to talk about what they did to her so many years in the past. Once the cousins got away with the rape, they were emboldened. They felt untouchable, and it would open the door to an untold amount of rapes that would eventually lead to serial murder. Why would a serial killer become addicted to killing, and is there a biological effect that deepens their commitment to killing based upon their ability to be easily addicted to anything and everything, including murder? Those serial killers who are sexually compelled already have a very strong physiological component in the game. They've often fantasized for a long time about what they want to do and what, how they're going to identify as serial killers. And they've thought about what they are going to do to their victims and how they're going to get victims. So that all becomes part of their physiology. It's absorbed into their system and it puts their brain on high alert and their brain kicks in with uh, what we call neurotransmitters, dopamine primarily. This makes them feel alive. They, they're very excited. They want this to happen. And if it's everything it's cracked up to be, the brain actually kicks in and rewards that experience. And now they want to repeat it. And so the sensation-seeking aspect of this becomes part of the addiction, and the brain responds. Their rapes evolved into murder. Though they were only convicted of six murders, the police believe they were responsible for at least 30 others. Their alleged first two murders occurred on February 19, 1981. A 48-year-old mother Sang Wang Ling and her 17-year-old math prodigy daughter, Ying Wang Ling, were raped, tortured, murdered, decapitated, and buried on a citrus farm when Gore was a caretaker. Gore bragged of stalking 17-year-old Sang for two weeks before he abducted her as she stepped off her school bus heading home for the day. Their next murder occurred on July 15, 1981. Gore disabled her car with 35-year-old mother, Judy K. Daly, as she sunbathed at a public beach. When she attempted to start her car to head home that day, Gore pulled his vehicle next to hers and offered to help. The fact that he was wearing his auxiliary police uniform lowered the woman's defenses. She agreed to a lift to the nearest service station. Steve, Gore's callous letters to another pen pal recipient horrified Florida's then-Governor Rick Scott so much that he moved Gore up in front of other death row inmates. Gore's letters are notoriously graphic and remorseless. How could Gore and Waterfield do this to women who are their cousins and sisters? Were they insane? Using the word insane uh, to me is just basically um, a, a legal term, you know, that whether they understood the... Uh, the uh, ramifications of their actions, whether they thought it was illegal. Clearly, they knew it was illegal. Clearly, they knew they were committing murder. They were committing a death penalty case. So this is something that was more important than anything else there. Their hatred for women and the fact that they were, might have some sort of close proximity to them had absolutely nothing to do with whether they were going to decide to do that or not. 
In this letter, Gore writes about using his police uniform as a ruse, explaining how he abducted Judy K. Daly and many other women he was not arrested for. I was very productive in the summertime. Where I lived, we had about 15 or 20 miles of road right along the beach. And there are quite a few pull-offs that were very quiet and secluded little beaches. During the week, there were a lot of housewives who'd come to these beaches after their husbands left for work in the morning. Well, I'd start at 9 a.m., just cruising up and down, checking all the pull-offs for chicks. Whenever I'd find a woman by herself, I'd disable her car. And when it came time to leave, I'd come pulling up, and they would always ask for help. I begged several nice females like that. At times, I used my 35-millimeter camera with a telephoto lens to take pictures of the chicks on the beach. So one day, I took a photo of this woman in the morning. And when I went back much later, everyone had gone except her. This is one of those beaches off the road, really secluded. So I thought, what the hell? I disabled her car and waited. When she went to leave, her car didn't start, so I offered to help. My auxiliary police uniform must have done the trick because she asked me for a ride to a phone. And of course, I agreed. Couldn't have been easier, Rich. I abducted her. And later I raped and tortured her. She was probably in her early 30s. Hey, if the count were left earlier, she'd have been okay. I usually had a pattern I'd follow in the course of a day before going to the beach in the morning. I cruised around the whole county checking bus stops for young teenagers. If I didn't have any luck, I'd hit the beach. The town I lived in was pretty small, so when a female came out missing, it was pretty big news, and there was an intense search for several days. But I was good in leaving no evidence. All they'd find is empty space. I used to love to watch the news see the stupidness of the cops. I was really careful. And the deeper I got into my sadistic ways, the more intense it was. Needless to say, Rich, I was the most hated man in my hometown, which were my hunting grounds. Well, that's life, I guess. Gore and Waterfield's fourth and fifth murders were of two 14-year-old hitchhikers. Angelica Lavallee and Barbara Ann Dyer. They picked him up on May 20th, 1983. After raping and torturing both girls, Gore shot them in the head. Gore buried Barbara on a citrus farm whose body was recovered later. Gore wasn't as kind to the remains of Angelica Lavallee, whom he disposed of in an alligator-infested swamp. Her body was never recovered. Their murderous spree came to an end after they abducted two hitchhikers, 17-year-old Lynn Elliott and her 14-year-old friend Reagan Martin on July 26, 1983. Gore brought both girls to his house where he bound and gagged them. Before raping and torturing them, he called up his cousin Freddie to rave about his newest capture. Waterfield left work immediately and met Gore at his house after they raped and beat the girls, Waterfield told Gore he had to go back to work, but after having more fun with them, he was to get rid of them. Gore held the girls tied up in separate rooms. When he finished raping Lynn Elliott, he went into the room where Reagan Martin was tied up and he began to rape her as well. However, brave Lynn Elliott broke free from her ropes and ran out of the house. Gore heard her leave, and with his gun in hand, he chased after her. After Lynn Elliott was halfway down the driveway to freedom, Gore, who was completely naked, caught up to her, casually pointing his gun at her and shot her once in the back. When she went down, Gore casually walked up to her and shot her once again in the head, killing her instantly. He dragged her lifeless body to his carport. He opened the trunk and deposited Lynn Elliott's body inside and closed the trunk. What Gore didn't know was that a young boy, riding his bike at the time, witnessed the murder and ran home to tell his mother. Within minutes, the police surrounded Gore's house. After a short negotiation with the police, Gore gave himself up, and Reagan Martin 
lived to implicate Cousin Freddy in the horrific crime. In 1983, Gore was sentenced to death, and Waterfield was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Both men died in prison. Gore by lethal injection, Waterfield of natural causes. For additional content and to discuss these podcasts, please go to killersvault.com. The Killer's Vault podcast is based on the serial killer collection owned by Dr. David Adamovich and Lynn Wheat and collected by Richie and Barbara Dickstein. The Killer's Vault podcast is also based on the serial killer collection owned and collected by Rob Webb. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.